How's it going, everyone? I'm Marib Khan, and you're listening to Cool for Thought. Ever since I started becoming more politically aware, I've been fascinated with finding out how and why we're so numb to gun violence in America. The only time I had ever thought about guns was when my parents told me stories about when they were my age and they lived through a bloody war for independence. Even then, for as close to home as that hit, the idea of people being killed by guns while going about their daily lives seemed like a foreign concept that must have been left far behind. I couldn't have been any more wrong, and I couldn't have been any more privileged. It was a privilege to be able to learn about the horrific things that can happen when the wrong people get their hands on guns while being safeguarded in a community that hadn't faced more than a handful of gun deaths per year. Not even three quarters of the way through 2016, and that same community has nearly 20 homicides already. That should be an alarmingly high number for anyone, but as we'll hear from the three amazing women we sat down with in this episode, that number is not uncommon at all. Our first guest is Kayla Hicks, the director of the Educational Fund to End Gun Violence. She owns guns herself and is married to a police officer. Kayla was kind enough to introduce us to our other two guests on this episode, Nardine and Jeray, who have very personal experiences with gun violence. Nardine lost her only child to an act of gun violence in 2010. She now runs a group called Stop Killing Innocent People, or SKIP for short. Nardine's daughter, Brichelle, would have turned 23 this year. Our final guest, Jeray, is a Hampton University student who has transformed the pain and emotion of losing people close to her to gun violence into a program to mentor young girls who have their own experiences with gun violence. Can I ask a little bit about your guys' background? I know, I know a bit about Kayla's background. Um, you're easily searchable on the internet. Yeah. <laughs> um, can I ask first, you know, were you raised in a household that had guns? No, I was not raised around guns at all. Didn't know anything about them. So how did you feel about them growing up? I didn't care about them. They, they were not relevant to me. I grew up where I was raised. I was raised in a community where there was only two families that had a tinge of pigmentation, and one was mine, so we didn't have any concerns. It was a nice, you know, upper-middle-class, rich area, and I wasn't raised around um, African-Americans or any type of minority groups. I was raised around mm-hmm. individuals that didn't look like me. Mm-hmm. So whenever I did go visit people that looked like me, I was too white for them. And where I was living, I was not acceptable for them. So, Right. Yeah. And, and you're a gun owner now. I am. What kind of guns do you own? I have, I'm a Glock girl. I'm not promoting Glock, but it is what, it's what's comfortable for me. Um, so I have a 26, 9, and a 45. And my husband obviously is a police officer, so he carries that as well. And he has a SIG, that's what he has for his duty. But when I was out actively being a bounty hunter, I you know, have shotgun as well. I, I don't have that in my home, so. And you mentioned that your husband is a police officer. If any, what kind of perspective does that give you on the entire scenario, the entire situation, especially now with you know the police shootings um, and the shootings of police following you know incidents like Dallas and Louisiana? The challenge that we have when it comes to talking about police and community and guns is that the police are part of the community. 
right? And when they're on duty, they just so happen to have guns. And people kind of separate them from being fathers and mothers, cousins, uncles, and brothers. And the challenge is, is that as organizers, we are taught in Organizing 101 that the ideal is when you have an issue and you want to bring attention to it, is you do something to stage police presence. Because if you go do a sit-in and no one shows up, then no news, they're not going to come. But if you promote or provoke the police to come, and they are to do their job, especially in the Commonwealth of Virginia, we know that police don't write law, they enforce law. So as a legislator has it, uh, guns are easily accessible and there's not a lot of restrictions. So now you have the police officer who's there to do his job. And we already have the issue where we're talking about race, where people are looking at um, unarmed black males being uh, gunned down by armed white males who are uh, police officers, right? We don't know through hate or fear. We do know that there are some racist rogue officers out there, but certainly not all of them. Um, but so from the lens that I look at, uh, we as a society are allowing this narrative to continue to the point where we're now seeing police officers being assassinated because the community is frustrated with what they're looking at when it comes to black males being shot. Whether it's justified or unjustified, no one sees that line anymore because they don't care because right. they want something done, right? They want social justice. They want progress. They want some kind of change that they can see, feel, and know is taking place, and they're not getting it because you'll see my, my focus will always be on um, the gun violence is a, is a symptom of the larger problem, and it'll always be policy. So if you go back to the way legislators have things set up, it's always going to compromise the people in the community, because it's always going to be, like you said, us against them. And it's never us against them. Most police officers, when they leave, like mine, he wants to come home to his family, right? He wants right. to make sure that I'm okay, our children are okay. He wants to make sure that he can also pay his bills. We have more alike than different. But we keep allowing ourselves to be separated by, um, as um, Nardine had mentioned earlier, about it, it's money. When, when something becomes profitable, it's no longer about people anymore. So we're looking at people, right, politicians, and money. So it's always going to come back to that. You follow the money, you find the problem. In your work as an organizer, how do you work to maybe shape the narrative such that we aren't you know, opposing, as citizens, we're not opposing cops, or as cops, they don't feel like they're being antagonized by protesters or by citizens. Well, I mean, we, uh, we have a tool, the Educational Fund um, has a tool that we created called uh, the Education Action Toolkit, which is basically from knowledge to power where we take this information into communities for free, and we teach them how to be effective grassroots organizers. And the issue that we deal with is gun violence prevention, but this is modeled so that anyone could take this and use it in their communities and not have to feel like they can't do anything because they don't have funding. Um, so I think what we pride ourselves on is being able to help uh, the communities understand that if policy doesn't change everything remains the same so our tool our biggest weapon is to teach people facts evidence-based facts lead to evidence-based decisions mm -hmm. and we engage individuals in that process so that they know that they have the powers and the tools available to them to put politicians in place to write policy that protects the community versus the policies that they're putting out there for profit um, and that's just teaching them through education, engagement, and action. And there's a series of steps that we teach. We even teach about 
um, writing op-ed letters, letters to the editors. We show people in the community that are underserved or unserved how to do things that no one else has taken the time to do. Small things such as showing them how to visit their legislator, how to set up an appointment, what an LA is, because a lot of people think mm -hmm. LA stands for Los Angeles. They don't know legislative aid, right? But how would they know? You don't know what you don't know until you know. So we take the opportunity to make sure that we are giving the information to the community that nobody else is giving them. And, and we, we, we teach them about, like I said, effective grassroots organizing. Yeah, but whenever I think about guns, I always kind of try to remind myself of the baseline, which is essentially the Second Amendment. The actual text states, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. My question is twofold. A, what are your thoughts on that? How do you interpret it? And B, how do you see it affecting legislation today? I first see it as if we had muskets, it'd be great, right? It'd be fine. Like during the time when it was, you know, you can finish pumping up your gun with the lead. You know, I could probably be gone by the time you finish, so there won't be an incident. But now we don't have those types of guns. Right. We have things that mow you down within seconds. Um, so I think that it's a joke that it's being misused. And as for myself, depending on what research you're looking at and who you want to believe, I always go back to the Second Amendment when people talk to me about it and talk about um, historically what that means. Where was it created from and what was it created for? Well, from my knowledge as a black woman, what I was taught was is that it was through slave patrol. Second Amendment was in, originally meant to make sure that slaves could not obtain access to firearms to overthrow their oppressors. Well, that's quite interesting to me. Now you want me to help protect your Second Amendment rights when it was originally meant for my ancestors to be oppressed. But then I still have to have the further conversation of we, were, we weren't considered, um, African Americans weren't considered people until, again, we were needed for some electoral process, right? Then we became, luckily, thank you, we really appreciate being three-fifths of a person. So that whole Second Amendment right, you know, I've got to talk about the baby, the birth of that. And now you bring me here to, to, to today and we talk about what, what type of weapons they had then versus what they have now. As we evolve as a nation, we have to be conscious of that. We have to know what is available. And it goes back to uh, profit. So now you have these guns that are profitable and they are affecting one community more than any other community. One, you're looking at a whole entire culture that has been um, Basically, it's almost genocide in a sense when you have generations of uh, people being taken away. And when I say that I'm talking about African Americans, if we look at the population of people, just between 0 and 19, studies are showing that between 0 and 19 that we have, I think it's about 16%, they, they represent 16% of the population, but like 41% of the homicides or the deaths by firearm. That is a tremendous number. That is generations of kids that are brown, beige, and black that are gone, that nobody finds relevant. If those numbers were for anyone else, they would not exist. It would have been stopped a long time ago. So me and the Second Amendment right feels like this. As a gun owner, I am a responsible gun owner. And I believe that every single person that has the opportunity to put a firearm in their hands should be subject to a background check. And if you cannot get it, then you should not have it. And if there's a delay and or error, that's okay. It's called process. 
It's what we have to deal with. You're not letting someone get into a car and drive without making sure that they can actually drive. So why would you give them something that is meant for one thing, and that's killing? I don't care if it's hunting, which most people will allude to, that it's for hunting and war. It is not being used for those purposes today, so we evolved into that. And I wanted to say that I believe that um, Nardine Jeffries has taken up a big fight when it comes to this because her daughter is no longer here because of it. And I just think that it's only responsible of me to allow for her to be able to say something about what she feels about this Second Amendment argument. Absolutely. <laughs> well, I don't think I could have said it any better than Kayla. Um, I totally agree. Um, people use the Second Amendment right, I think, a little too loosely. You know, and I just feel like as we've been the most hunted and hated race of people since the beginning of time and that hasn't changed and I don't think it will change. Um, so for anyone to say that you're infringing on someone's Second Amendment rights, I just feel like my right to live should be more of a concern. Children have the right to grow up and grow old. I have the right to grow old. My life has been forever interrupted and very uncomfortable. So. I feel like that has to be the dialogue and the narrative for me now for the powers that be, the politicians. You can't keep saying you want to protect Second Amendment rights. And like, and I've used that same example. It's like, you know, for me to go purchase a car before I can even, it's so many steps that I have to go through. I have to get financing. Mm -hmm. I have to prove that I've been approved. And how much have I been approved for? I have to show that I have proper insurance and I have to have the right insurance and enough insurance. And I have to, you know, I mean, it's all these steps that you have to go through. Is your driver's license valid? And, you know, do you owe tickets over here in this state? And it's so many steps and it's such a process. And all of that is to protect someone. But it's not the same with guns. It's like anyone that has a pulse, it seems like now people think that you should have guns or any type of gun. And AK-47s, high-powered rifles such as the one that killed my daughter, they have no business in anyone's home to so-called protect their Second Amendment right. I don't know what type of intruder you expect to come into your home, but that, to me, no. That's, that's just meant for, it's a killer machine. Mm -hmm. That's the same type of weapon my father used to protect this great land. And that's the same type of weapon that, you know, killed his only grandchild. So I just think we have to revisit, you know, the, the, the laws overall. Where we were as a country, riding on horses and walking across, you know, plateaus is not where we are now. So things do have to be revisited and, and just reworded. Kayla, in June, you said we're watching this tragedy unfold while there are people building generations of wealth with these guns and we're burying generations of kids. And that, you know, it's very similar to what we're talking about right now. Um, and when I first read that quote by you, um, it made me think about a New York Times graph that I saw a couple months ago, actually, that showed that the highest month of gun sales, the graph showed since the year 2000, but I think it would probably be safe of me to speculate that it is probably in you know American history that month had the most gun sales was the month following uh, the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting, which also coincides with uh, President Obama's re-election. That month had nearly two million gun sales in our 50 states. You know, Kaylee, you mentioned profit. 
um, and Nardine as well. What are we supposed to do when these companies are undeniably profiting off of these atrocities? So it's very difficult to interrupt profit, right? We know that this country and throughout time, you know, it's always been about money and power. So it has to be done effectively and it has to, a lot of failures, there's no infrastructure in these movements. So what we have to do is start putting the energy in the right places and collectively uh, the grassroots organizing movement that you're starting to see, people that are directly affected, that are typically never involved are now coming to the table. People that look like me, like Nardine, like you, we are starting to come to the table and understand that the legislators that are specifically taking money or special interest groups that are supporting them um, to protect the gun manufacturers profit instead of protecting the community's life are the ones that we need to start paying attention to. If a legislator is in office, he's there not because he decided or she decided to walk into that office and sit down in the chair and try it out like a pair of jeans and say, this is comfy. I like these. And, you know, stay there. That's not how that works. They got there because someone put them there or because someone didn't vote. And at this time, we're starting to see that hate and fear is what is driving people to go out there and get all these guns because when the moon comes up and the sun goes down, that's because that's President Obama's fault. When the rain happens and a car accident happens and you see a delay on the highway, that's President Obama's fault. Thanks, Obama. That's right. <laughs> Priceless, right? So we blame everything on Obama. Now he's creating a gun registry. He's going to come and confiscate everyone's gun. Still yet, I have yet to see a list of where during this president's presidency where people have been legally denied their right to a firearm because of him and it was confiscated. So do you think that that's just a talking point used by a certain political side to maybe increase those profits considering the fact that over the past seven, eight years it has record sales of every single month? Of course. Of course. <laughs> You know, there's not much more to say besides, thanks, Obama, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's just, it's, it's sad and it's unfortunate, but society is operating off of fear and hate. Yeah. That's what we have right now. And you have to choose what side you're going to be on. I think it was in 2014 uh, when Virginia passed two bills. Uh, one was about prohibiting domestic and sexual assault criminals from uh, obtaining guns. And the other one was was uh, prohibiting cele celebratory gunfire. And after those two bills passed, Kayla, you had a quote where you were talking about, as a responsible gun owner, you can see how those bills will both protect the safety of Virginians as well as protect your rights as a gun owner. So moving forward, do we need to craft better legislation in terms of achieving both of those goals? Or is it just a problem of simply framing the argument such that we can understand that these laws actually are aimed at achieving both of these points? As a gun owner, uh, I think that we have to step up and start doing more and being uh, more active in the role of, of putting out there that we do need um, to have uh, effective legislative priorities that need to be on the table right now. As far as the the, the loopholes, obviously that's a big one. Um, we, we need to get the background checks on, 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 on all gun sales. Um, 
but I think what we tend to keep forgetting is is that why is there so much pushback, right? We keep talking about um, the things that are out there, but then we don't talk about why people are pushing back. And you often hear the other side say that if you have all you know background checks that you're going to be violating people's uh, rights um, to own firearms or it's going to um, prevent them from getting the firearms that killed Nardine Jeffrey's daughter um, and they should have the right to them. I think that we have to make sure that the legislators as well as the community sees the reality of what these guns are doing to the individuals that are being gunned down. And Nardine Jeffries has done that. She doesn't show the beautiful pictures of remembering her daughter. She shows her daughter's autopsy. And most people don't want to look at that. They don't want to see the tragedy of what this gun violence looks like. And some people will look right past it because they're operating out of fear and hate. And until we start educating communities on policy and not in policy language, this is the problem that we are talking about all this uh, research and this policy and data, but we're not translating it into community information. So if you have the knowledge and you have the information and you don't put it in a place where people can understand it, legislation and priorities and policy, none of this stuff makes any difference to the community that's suffering as a whole. So we wanna, um, you know, I like to make sure that I address the issue of, yes, we need to do more when it comes to, to, to legislation. It's very important that we start talking about what that looks like from both sides. We want gun owners and we want non-gun owners. We have to come together. There's no other way to do it. But there can't be, well, you're going to give, we can't have what the current, um, what we look at when we see Congress now. We're not going to get anywhere like that. Because where do they get? They go home and take vacations. You know, we'll deal with it when you come back. People are still dying. People aren't getting their pay. Like, there's millions of things that are happening that they could care less about. And if we strategically, as a society, come together, and we know that these legislators are being supported by special interest groups, if we start visiting these places in large volumes, instead of going to the police station where they can't do anything, why not go to the restaurant or to the store where everything that they do depends on the people coming in and be there to show people what gun violence actually looks like because of those that are left behind. And beyond that bullet, there's stories to be told that are real. They're not movies, they're not clips, they're not sound bites. And just because they have pigmentation in their skin does not mean that they're not value. They're not, you know, being, they're, we're being treated like cattle. And I think we have to start talking more about that. We have to start talking more about what's happening to the communities and the generations that are no longer here. And I do often say that while you have the special interest groups and the gun lobbies building generational wealth while we're burying generations of kids, that's not, I'm not making that up. Statistics show you that it's true. Right. So right. I am not the one that is pleasantly sitting around talking policy and legislation only. I want to talk about how we do how we do we fix that? Like this is affecting communities where people that should be celebrating their golden years are terrified in their homes because they cannot move out. They're on a fixed income and they're poor. They have nowhere to go. So now they have to become victims of their communities.
because you have kids out there running around with easy access to firearms that legislators that are sitting somewhere safe in their cushy homes and their nice places, they're not thinking about that because it doesn't affect them because they're going to go hunting with their grandkids or their kids that weekend, right? While our communities are being hunted, literally, because we're being held from necessary resources. Too many guns, not enough resources. So if we want to talk legislation and policy, let's talk about what's really happening. Where's the money to keep centers open for kids that need it? Where's the money for people that live in Section 8 housing that have, you know, rats and, and, and roaches and have no work water, that have nothing? What do you think those families are going to do? What do you think they're going to do? You've got people returning into the community that have no job, but yet they get a bill from the state within a month or two saying you better pay $1,200 or you're going back to jail in 90 days. What did you think they were going to do? So if we start looking at communities and economic areas and looking at how these tragedies happen and where we see the gun violence and why we keep talking about it, we'll find that it's resources. The lack of resources are what we will see are causing the majority of problems. And it's not um, limited to that. We're talking people want to blame it on mentally ill people. Come on now. I mean, studies show that they're more likely to be victims than, you know, victimize someone. Depending on what study you're looking at, it's about 4 to 6%. Right? So, you know, we need to stop letting that be a scapegoat for legislators. Oh, we've just got to deal with the mentally ill. No. You've got to deal with the fact that there are resources that are needed that are not being provided. You can't keep building million-dollar stadiums and all these, you know, interesting... With taxpayer money. Right. And then say we have no money to help you with before and after school care or food programs. You know, things that would deter people from criminal activity. There's a lot of people doing a lot of things. Like you'll hear in many black communities, like 20 churches on one street, and in one week, all 20 churches had a gun violence prevention meeting at different times. How is that possible? <laughs> right? <laughs> Seriously. And I mean, I deal with a lot of young folks, like this this uh, young lady right here, Jeraine, and she has a group called uh, Diamonds that she doesn't get a lot of support in, but she's trying to help mentor young girls. And you would think that people would pour into that, but she's lost six or seven friends and, you know, people don't ask them, what do they need? How do they feel? Uh, you know, we remove those barriers and we welcome that. Come in. Tell me what it is that I can do to help. And I think we need to do a better job at um, pulling more of these youth in to the conversations and talking to the ones that nobody wants to talk to. Trey, Kayla mentions Diamonds. Can you tell us a little bit about the organization? Um, so the Diamonds is a group that I started about three years ago, and Diamonds is an acronym that stands for Dedicated Inspired Ambassadors Motivating Others and Noticing Diversity Successfully. And so what happens when I bring in the girls, and I take in girls from any ages, and I enroll them in my mentorship program. So I take them under my wing, I evaluate what their situation's like at home, and I try to find them as many resources as I can, whether it's tutors for after school or pastors or um, someone you know that can get them groceries for the week or toiletries. And then as an incentive, um, they get to do my cheer and dance program. So they perform at local events because that's kind of the way to keep the girls interested. Um, at that age, telling you I'm going to come mentor you isn't really... Um, enticing <laughs> so my pull was okay everybody wants to cheer everybody wants to dance um, so I do it free to their parents because I know that if I charge there's a lot of girls that wouldn't have the opportunity to do it um, so right now everything either comes out of pocket or I do the best that we can to fundraise um, and that was just my way to kind of give back I know that I'm not above any of my friends that are in jail or in the ground 
It's just that I had a village and I had people to call on that some of my friends don't have or don't know that they have. And so I wanted to try to establish that for other young women. This is in the, the Hampton area, right? Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit more about what the situation in Hampton is like right now? I think difficult is an understatement. I feel like there's a generational ignorance that's not just limited to my city, but I think that there's a miscommunication between my age group and the age group above us, where I feel like adults expect a lot out of us, but aren't really asking the right questions or willing to hear the answers that we have available. And I think that friends my age aren't willing to go through the process it takes to learn more. Um, I think that we're an instant generation, so we have Twitter and Google and Snapchat. So if we have a problem, we want to answer now. If I say I'm hungry, I want food now. If I say my mom's lights are off, I want you to do it now. I don't want you to tell me that I have to call this number and wait 10 days or enroll for this program and wait for assistance. And I think that a lot of that is where some of the trouble comes from because we need it now. And we feel like if there's a problem and you're telling me I have to wait, but somebody in the street is telling me if I do this real quick, everything's going to be okay, then sometimes you submit in order to feel like you're going to be okay from day to day. When did you start Diamonds? Um, about three years ago. Um, my god brother was shot and killed October 2nd, 2012, um, a week before his 17th birthday outside of his home. And in grieving, um, I was trying to find a productive way to retaliate. And then within my junior and senior year of high school, I lost another four or five friends, um, one the night before our senior brunch. And so like Ms. Kayla was saying, there's fear and there's hate. And I didn't want my anger to turn into hatred. Um, so that was kind of my way to invest my feelings, I guess, in a positive way. Not to say that anger doesn't resurface, especially because I'm still burying my friends. It's to the point now where like watching the news is depressing because there's more, there's more death stories than there is anything else. And then the little bit of good that's happening, you don't hear about. What's the age range of the girls that you mentor? My youngest started at four. She's six now. And my eldest is 16. Um, this year I have four girls who are going off to high school. And so now they're, um, they're actually at each high school in the city. And they're cheering there. So um, I'm kind of using that as a platform to get into those high schools also. Because now I have one girl at every school. So That's awesome. Do you hope to maybe someday you know, be able to expand the program? <laughs> I would love to do that. Um, it's just kind of difficult without having the support because I'm one 20-year-old with two jobs and tuition. Um, I'm a full-time student. I take 18 credit hours. And right wow. now, a lot of their parents can't do what they would like to do. And so it winds up just being me mm -hmm. and 22 little faces staring back at me. So it becomes a lot of pressure to keep it going. Um, and I think it's difficult because I don't want to quit because I wonder what happens if I stop? Where are they gonna turn or what are they willing to sacrifice because they don't have that help? But if I don't have the help to continue, what does that mean for me? Nardine, Kayla said that um, you lost your daughter in 2010. And that you know, one thing that you do a lot is you show the autopsy photo and that people look right past it. Do you feel like in any way that dehumanizes your daughter? Absolutely. I don't understand how you can 
see a young child's head blown open and chest cut open from an autopsy and not care um, and not even want to know. Reporters will look like right through, you know, pretend like, you know, they just give you these weird stares where they're kind of looking around or everywhere. And I'm like, you know, trying to make sure they see the picture, but that's not what they want to see. I've had legislators tell me, oh, I don't want to see this, Ms. Jeffries, and I turn up too bad. That's what I had to see. And this is what's burned in my head. And this is what gun violence is. It's not the pictures of, you know, pre-gun violence when she was alive and thriving. This is, you know, the reality of gun violence. So how can you talk about gun violence and not show the images of what it looks like? There's nothing glamorous or pretty about gun violence. And those photos, you know, I have to show them. I feel anyway, because that's what it looks like. That's the reality of it. Will you share with us a little bit about what happened? Um, My daughter had, uh, there was a young man that she knew in the community who was gunned down eight days prior to her. There was a disagreement over a missing bracelet and a bunch of young people hanging out together and they all knew each other and the bracelet was not actually stolen. The young, one of the young ladies there had picked the bracelet up. There were some encounters between she and the young man and after their encounter, she saw the bracelet, thought it was pretty, put it on and they left, she and her friend. And the young man got up, got dressed, couldn't find his bracelet and went into a rage basically and you know started asking where who stole his bracelet and called his brother and a couple of other guys to come back because unfortunately this is the mentality of so many people that you know don't have the proper bring you know upbringing you're not taught conflict resolution you're not taught to have morals and respect and you know those things towards another human being so the way you deal with something is by violence so he called his brother and a couple of other guys they came back with a shotgun an AK-47 and I don't remember the other weapon used at that location. And they started patting down people and spraying the AK-47 and bullets started ricocheting and flying everywhere and struck and killed the young man in the car. His friend saw who had shot him and injured others and went and told his brother. So they decided to retaliate, which is what they did the next day. And... When the gun fired and struck the older brother, um, his he was plotting in the hospital to seek revenge. So it was another form of retaliation. So their plan was to go to the funeral, which happened on March 30th, and shoot as many people as they could in the funeral. But they didn't have a vehicle secured at that time. So my daughter went to that funeral along with a lot of other people and she made it home safely. But she has to go back outside to drop off a backpack to one of her friends who had spent the night to attend the funeral with her. So she went out to drop off the backpack and never made it home. My daughter didn't know any of the guys who shot at her or shot her, um, nor did they know her. Um, but because, and, and they don't care. You know, there are instances where they're, they're friends or they think they're friends 
their acquaintances, their associates or what have you, they may think they're best friends. And then there are other instances where they don't know the individuals. And they, but it really doesn't matter at this point. You know, it's like they, when, when you're hurting so bad, most people are going to inflict the same kind of pain that they're feeling. And when you look at television and all you see is blonde people telling stories about blonde people, and they're not telling stories of, you know, Pakistanians, black people, Asian people, Puerto Rican people. They're only talking about one race of people. Okay, that means you don't matter. Then when you have leaders that come on the television and only talk about one group of people and their stories and their tragedies, that means you don't matter. And then when you go to school and you're supposed to have your educators that are supposed to, you know, look out for you. And then you have all these, For in D.C., we have all these government agencies that are supposed to render services to these young people and their families, and they're not doing it. There's no accountability. There's no responsibility to these families. You're just getting government money. You're at a government agency, and, some, and, and they're just funneling children in and out. And, and they want to over-medicate some, under-medicate others, and it's, it's just a vicious cycle. And, and, and it's something that, I mean, it's just, it's really, it's a sad state of affairs because no one really cares. You're, you're telling, society has already deemed you as unworthy. You're less than human. And then you, you're in a household where it's so many, I met a young lady when I was speaking at a school a couple of weeks ago, 19 years old, and she's been taking care of her four-year-old brother since birth. They're in a foster care system because she refuses to let her brother go without her or she go without him. At 19, I can think I can think back to when I was 19 and all the fun that I had. This young lady's never done anything fun. She's been thrown into a role, a, an adult role as a mother, taking care of a child that's not her child, but it's her sibling. This is a lot of what goes on in certain communities. And when you're sitting over here with your Audi and your BMWs and your fences around your yards and you can pick your kids up and take them all to, you know, to these youth centers or summer camps or even when I'm on vacation, I see a whole lot of people vacationing with their children, but they don't look like me. And the reality is some of these black and brown people, they can't do the same things because they're not given that same opportunity. You're already at a disadvantage when you're telling me or someone that looks like me that you're not going to be able to do certain things because the way the system is set up, you're, it's just set up for you to fail. When, when I'm, I learned that there, there's a test that they do and that's how they determine how prisons are built based on, you know, that's very disheartening to me. They can't dream anymore. When you ask them, what do you want to be when you grow up? And you hear children telling you, well, I didn't think I was going to live to be 14 or 16. So I can't, they don't think beyond that moment because there is nothing beyond that moment to so many of them. And that's the hard reality. So we have to change all of that. But when you have such division in this country and you have such racism that people seem to have thought was gone, and that's the only good thing that I can say about Donald Trump, 
be running for office uh, president is that I'm glad he's showing what I've been saying for so long because so many of my white co-workers and, and neighbors seem to think that there is no such thing as racism. Black people just cry about everything. You make an excuse for everything. Everything is, you blame the white man for everything. Now your hateful racist ways has a name and a face and a big platform. And he's showing you the real division of this country. And if that isn't enough for people to jolt themselves into the reality that we need to do something and start embracing each other as the human race and not as a black race and a white race and a this race and a that, you know, it's not going to get any better. This, this war, which really to me is like a race war, that's already brewing. Raymond, I love the phrase, I've said this a hundred times on this podcast, <laughs> representation matters. Yeah. That's kind of something that we've kind of touched upon a little bit. Um, Ardeen, I think you talked about it a little bit when you talked about, you know, these blonde people on TV. Do you feel like having a better sense of representation in 2016 is changing that at all, you know, in, in different forms of media, whether that be in Hollywood or, um, you know, even, even through literature or something like that, do, do you feel like that's actually making an impact on, on actual communities? Or is it still something that's kind of, we're not there yet, that that's going to affect real people? I don't think we're there yet. I mean, you, I'd like to believe there's hope. I mean, there's definitely, there's some change, but it's not fast enough, and it's not always going in the right direction. Um, to me, because it's still too many, too many lives that are being slaughtered, and and they don't feel that they have a, a there's really nothing for them. And as far as the change, you're talking about like the presidential candidate, the change coming there, or not necessarily just there, because we know it's you said Hollywood. Not- <laughs> Do I think Hollywood is making an impact? Right. I mean, you know. A lot of the times we see in, in media, mass media, you know, they say, oh, you know, representation is changing. You know, we see TV shows like Blackish or, um, you know, Fresh Off the Boat or something. And we want to say. That's a movie. That's a. Fresh Off the Boat is an actual show. Believe me, I had the exact same thing. I that never you have even on right heard now. of that. Blackish. I don't know that one either, yeah. but I'm like, Bla- Off I'm the sorry, Boat. Fresh Off the Boat is yeah, too I'm much. Like, right. But, but Well, to me, that just with that title, I would have to say that that means that, no, we're not, right. we're not going in this, the right direction. It's still, you know, yeah. you're, you're almost black-facing, you know, you know, people now. You, you come up with these offensive titles for shows, and I don't even know what the show is about, but it just, <laughs> the name alone is, is not right. But no, I mean, you and, and, and this is the whole problem. Hollywood thinks that, I mean, it's no different than when, when you like do the, de, um, the depiction of the Bible and you, I forgot the actor's name, but they rub some cream on them to make them tan. You're gonna play, have movies where you're talking about Native Americans and you go get some white people and you put on some you know orange paint and put wigs on them. Okay, there- What was the movie about Moses they just made? Uh, where he Christian Bale played Moses, or but this is like what that. I'm saying, and it's like so. You're asking me, do I think Hollywood is is no? I don't. No, Hollywood is Hollywood, and it's all you know. It, it's fake. It's always going to be fake, and it's and it's 
whitewashed like everything else. You can't take a story and talk about people of color and spray paint and rub cream on people and stick wigs on them and, and tell me that's a good representation of, of black, brown, beige, whoever, you know, color people when it's plenty of us that are in Hollywood or even young up-and-coming actors and actresses. So that's the best you can do. So no, it's not getting any better. It's still as racist and offensive as it always has been and probably always will be. And then I look at some of this, the celebrities that are even, you know, unless they, some of them are doing things, what? <laughs> <laughs> the celebrities that are doing things that just are don't so... don't say names. No, I'm just saying, I, I wasn't even... I don't know what what I was getting at. She kind of made me lose my train of thought. What I was getting at is that for you to be a person of color and you come from a certain community and you're not even reaching back and giving back, to me it's like, uh, you know, that's insulting, you know, because you can do more. But everyone wants to run home and watch, you know, what is it, this show or that show where they're, you know, you know, I guess she doesn't want me to say certain names about shows and stuff, but I mean, I just, oh, I I'll have to say one, which is Empire. I don't really see where that's a, a positive show. I watched it the first night it came on, and that was it. And that's just my, you know, preference on it. I, you know, it's like, you do what you want to do, but I just feel like I don't understand why, once again, Hollywood, in order for a black family to be successful, it had to be because of drug dealing and illegal activities and violence and gangs and all this kind of stuff. There's plenty of educated black people that are doing well for themselves. I come from a family that, you know, is the, that. They went to school. They all have degrees. They have homes. They're, you know, doing well in their lives. It's not because my uncle or my father was, you know, selling crack rocks or whatever on the corner and shooting people and, you know, that type of stuff. So I just have a, I, I don't like it. I don't even have cable. And I don't even look at a lot of those shows because, like, when you name Blackish, I'm like, I don't even know what that one is. But an off the boat, I don't know what that is either, so... <laughs> I'm very interested in understanding what um, representation matters means to both of you and where that came from. That is something that I would really like to be able to include in the work that I'm doing because it is very true, but I want to know what that means to you all. To me, I'll start with the phrase representation matters first. Um, <clears throat> to me, it has nothing to do with Hollywood. Um, it has nothing to do with who is the president. Um, it has nothing to do with who our governor is. Um, every child growing up has some type of hero, um, whether that hero is their next door neighbor or their big brother or their father or mother or it may be the president, um, but it doesn't have to be somebody who has a title or who has wealth or power or a platform. It has everything to do with how they touch that child and for me, growing up, I didn't really have a lot of role models that um, were educated, who looked like me, who thought the way that I did, even as like a six-year-old, or who, um, you know, really wanted to foster my intellectual growth. And I think when I look at the phrase representation matters, I lean towards looking at those heroes and kind of understanding what that means to each individual person. And not everybody even has 
TV so that they can watch mm-hmm. President Barack Obama give you know, some type of State of the Union address or inauguration speech. Everybody needs somebody who they can look up to and they can kind of see the world through their eyes or maybe live vicariously through their experiences so that they can grow without having to experience a lot of the challenges or the problems of maybe losing a loved one or um, getting fired from a job or whatever it is. that's what representation means to me. It means connecting with somebody on a very basic human level um, and being able to foster that kind of connection and that kind of relationship. That representation means so much more to me than the possibility of, you know, in the future having a Muslim president or something like that. Mm-hmm. So for me, representation does matter. It's about this work that I'm doing. And in your words, the heroes that I have in my life, um, they don't have to be educated. I think a lot of us get caught up in that and we always say education. There are a lot of smart people that don't have a formal education. Right. Doesn't piece mean, of paper. Right, that they're not valuable. So for me, representation matters because my hero, the one that sits to my right, Nardine, is important because she represents an entire nation of people, black women, Mm -hmm. that have no voice, that have lost children, but because they're black women, they get no voice. Mm -hmm. But yet she's here trying to save other people's children when her only child has been taken away from her violently. She didn't do anything wrong, she did everything right, but yet Mm Someone that did not represent their child, did not give their children love, guidance, for whatever reason, because of what they did not represent, her child is gone. Representation matters because the young lady that sits across to me, to my right, Jeray, this beautiful program for diamonds and mentoring youth, she's giving everything she does not have. She suffers herself daily, but would you know it because she speaks so eloquently and she's beautiful. She's an HU student. Do you think she has the support that she needs? No, she doesn't. But she represents so many of the children that are out there in that microwave syndrome where I want it quick, fast, and in a hurry, give it to me now. And I don't need God because I got Google. Representation matters because that young lady matters. She's the voice of millions. The kids that we keep saying, what's wrong with them? No, what's wrong with us? Mm-hmm. And then representation matters because of people like you two. You give a voice to the colorless, to the people of color that people care less about. You give us this unique opportunity to be unfiltered in what we feel and what we know to be true and with a tinge of emotion balance with evidence-based facts, things that you can find out are true, and give us a platform to say, no, it's not okay when you see a Black Lives Matter event where you have a highway blocked off and the picture that you see is of white people. (laughs) That's like fresh off the boat, right? There's a problem there. (laughs) We've got a problem with this. So it is the responsibility of each one of us to take up the mantle and move. We have a responsibility to ourselves before others. So when we neglect ourselves, we can't expect for anything else but what we have. 
So representation does matter, and it doesn't come from title or position. It comes from within the heart. The holistic approach of healing a nation mm -hmm. is real. It's not just a statement. It's not just a, oh, this is going to be a fad, it'll go away. No, it's real. If we are going to see any real change, then representation matters. Kayla is absolutely right because I have um, lots of notes and a couple of essays that my daughter had written when she was in school and asked to write about um, her hero and who um, your role model is, and she always wrote about me. So that said a lot about me as a mother and the love and the everything I put into that child. And it said a lot about her to receive what I gave her. A week before she was killed, she wanted to ride on a motorcycle with me. I have a motorcycle and the president of my bike club said, that's really cool. And I said, what? And he said that that 16-year-old child thinks that much of you and wants to hang out with you. He's like, what 16-year-old do you know now that wants to hang out? And I'm like, I don't know. But to me, I just, I didn't think it was a big deal because that's the way I was raised. I enjoyed spending time with my parents. I remember taking my daughter over to my parents' house on the weekends, and we'd all be up in the big bed with my mom and dad, mom and daddy at the top, me and my sister and my daughter all down at the foot, and we watching, you know, movies all night. Then we get up and have breakfast and, you know, take our showers or whatever on Saturday, and we, you know, start cooking or running errands, and that's what we did. And I'd have to, honestly, March 30th woke me up in a lot of ways, not only for the fact that my only child had been gunned down, which was shocking in itself. But I really had a lot of blinders on that day because I just, I didn't even realize that it was so many hurting, hurting people and young people. I didn't know. I mean, I know when Brichelle had friends over, at one point she, some of the girls were really shocked that I cooked. I love to cook. And um, I cooked breakfast, I cooked you know, they had snacks and then they had dinner. And it was just like, your mom cooks? And she was like, yeah, yours doesn't. And they were like, no. So I, I saw a need there. And I worked on a program at the school that they attended. And we had a psychi the Washington Psychiatric Group come in and volunteered one psych psychiatrist once a week. We had a newsletter. We had an esthetician come in. We had a nutritionist. It was just different things that I saw that, you know, I felt like the children needed, the young girls. And that's what we did because I realized a lot of my daughter's friends, they were the same age as my daughter, but their mothers were much younger than me. So I wanted to make sure that you're putting into your children what I'm putting into mine. You know, we can duplicate a good model just like people are duplicating a very negative and violent one and if we just invest a little bit of and of our time and that's what you know I'm, I'm working hard in the community to do Kayla's right I've reached out people are donating books and you know I was using my daughter's books but I didn't you know I kind of felt funny with other kids touching her stuff and sometimes they were taking them home so I just said no nah, I don't think that's gonna work but it doesn't take a lot to get a few coloring books, and she's right. That's what we did. When it was raining outside, my mother put blankets up, and we made these little tents, and, you know, it's just, and it felt good. 
you know, to be with your family. So representation does matter. And when you're given the right representation, I think that the end result is going to be a good one. When you're when you're not giving the good the right one, it's going to be a very violent one, and that's the one that we've been seeing for um, just far too long. And it's it's just not good, you know. I I just sit here and I just think about, like I said, those little notes thanking me for being the best mother in the world. And I used to tell her, well, I'm the only mother you have. And she's like, yeah, but you're the best mother. All my friends want you to be their mom. And then, you know, that makes me feel good just sitting here thinking about that. Because, you know, I used to wonder sometimes if I was a little too hard on her. And and I know people make these comments like you're not supposed to be friends with your children. But I think if you do it right, you can because... That was my best friend, as well as my daughter. She was very wise beyond her years, and I like to think that was because of what I put into her as well. So I miss talking to Bruchelle and, you know, running ideas past her. And so like I said, I just think that we, de we definitely have a lot of room for improvement, and the representation is real, and it's a very valuable representation and I just thank you all for having us here and thank Kayla for allowing me to come and crash her podcast with you all and just give a little feedback and you know my own little observation of things it's a pleasure you guys you're not crashing at all if you guys are as inspired by each of these strong women as I am, send us your thoughts at cftpodcast at gmail.com. We have to thank one of our listeners, Lauren, from Washington, D.C., for suggesting this episode's topic. Remember to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or your podcast app, review, leave us a comment, and share it with friends and family. Thanks for listening to episode 10 of Cool for Thought. I'm Arib Khan. Stay hungry.